from this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Hodap, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Livable City. Thanks so much for listening. As this podcast begins to get into a rhythm, and as I publish more and more episodes, I want to encourage you to participate. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, find me in our Facebook group or DM me on Twitter at livable underscore city. Also, if someone you know is frustrated by their place in which they live, and you know they want to make it better, share this podcast with them as encouragement and practical tips in stepping up as that leader of change. I'm excited about my guest today. Laura Giffel is a licensed clinical therapist at Easter Seals Crossroads in Indianapolis. She's currently the president of the Bates Hendricks neighborhood in Indy, and Laura is running for city county council in Indianapolis for District 16, which includes the Bates Hendricks neighborhood. Laura is someone who has thought a lot about her city, and more importantly, her neighborhood. She's impressed me so much last year when I interviewed her for an episode of the Strong Indy podcast that I had to bring her back as a guest onto this one. You'll hear Laura talk about the ways in which she advocates for a more livable Bates Hendricks, as well as Indianapolis, and also her thoughts on how all of you can more effectively get involved in your place. Without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Welcome, Laura, to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can we start by a little bit about your background What got you into cities and uh, what gets you excited about them? Currently, I am a neighborhood president of a quickly changing neighborhood here on the southeast side of Indianapolis. Um, Our neighborhoods are, like I said, very quickly changing, um, probably in the last 10 years. And I moved into the neighborhood looking for a community that was already pretty much there. Um, I wanted a place that wasn't just a house, but it was a place that I could meet my neighbors and have porch parties um, and really make a difference. I grew up in the suburbs and I knew that that's not what I wanted. I still don't even think I know the names of the neighbors I grew up with. Um, And there was no way I could live like that for the rest of my life. So um, yeah, moved into Bates Hendricks, um, which has recently been made famous by the HGTV show, Good Bones. We'll give them a little bit of a plug there. Um, It's And for those unfamiliar with Indy. Where is Bates Hendrick exactly? Yeah. You kind of describe it. Yeah. That. So Bates Hendricks is um, so Indianapolis. It's a mile south of the circle, which is kind of the center of our city, the way it was platted on a grid. So we are on the southeast side of downtown. So on a bike, it takes me about 10 minutes to get to the center of downtown and the economic and the commercial district down there. Um, so we're platted a little bit as an original suburb. So our neighborhood um, is primarily single family homes on skinnier lots. So historically sized lots, um, but primarily single family. And our neighborhood now is considered a little bit more of an urban neighborhood. You have those typical urban challenges. So we're not a suburb anymore. Um, But yeah, right over there on the Southeast side, we're right next to a big um, commercial district. And our neighborhood was significantly impacted by the building of our interstates. So our neighborhood was cut in half, which kind of led to the death of our neighborhood the first time through. We're seeing that revitalization this time um, as people are making that swing back from the suburbs into 
our urban neighborhoods. So we're definitely a benefactor of all of that change. That sounds super dynamic. So obviously you love this neighborhood a lot. You care a lot about it enough to get involved, you know, uh, into the city council. That's, that's quite a shift from, you know, I don't want to just say just, but just being a, a citizen. Um, what, what made you want to do that? You know, what made you care so much about this neighborhood? I think um, I've always joked that our neighborhood, even before I lived here, had a little bit of kind of a cult piece to it in a good way. Um, people who live here are just really proud. And you set that expectation for a long time that if you live in Bates Hendricks, you know, we're quirky, we're different than the rest of the other neighborhoods around us. Um, and we just have this community service mentality and mantra to what we do. And so when I moved in here, it was a perfect fit to my personality. I've always kind of been in that leadership role um, and been the one that jumped up first. And government's always been really interesting to me. So I knew as soon as we moved in here that I joked as soon as we moved in that it wouldn't be long before I was on the board. And then once I was on the board, I said, oh, it's not going to be too long till this is my neighborhood. And it took me about six months to be on the board at most uh, and then a year to be president. So um, yeah, That's fantastic. So, and jumping in, I mean, there's so much stuff going on in our neighborhood now. I've lived in my neighborhood for five years. And during that time, I mean, just the change in five years, my street to kind of give everyone a picture, my street has probably 50 houses on it. And when we moved in, I would say 65, 70% of those houses were vacant and abandoned. Oh, wow. So... You've seen quite a few bit of change. Yeah, right now we have one vacant house on our street, um, and that's actually because we had a fire in it. So other than that, it, it had an occupant in it. Um, our Yeah, our neighborhood just has a high, right now is in the middle of all of that change and gentrification that's going on. And I think it takes somebody and all of us looking out for the entire neighborhood, because if not, I know we're just going to get gobbled up. Um, so we've had a really concerted effort to, plan and think ahead for the future. And that's been such an eye-opening experience for me of things that happen as an average citizen, you know, you're not thinking about stormwater, you're not thinking about drainage and density and transit, you know, you're just usually you're here and you have a house and you go to work and you come home, but working at the neighborhood level and that planning level, you know, there's things that when we look at houses, that's the stuff we have to think about. And, and I would have never thought about that as an average person. So what what made that shift for you? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit you love your neighborhood, but, you know, not everybody naturally says, I want to help make a difference in this neighborhood, which, you know, for those uh, who maybe didn't listen to the last episode about my story, I, I lived in Indianapolis for 15 years, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with it. So I know Bates Hendricks has some struggles, right, and mm-hmm. in, in for quite some time, but what made that that shift in your mind where you're like, we got to do something and I got to help lead it. I think for me, um, there was a house right next to me that was vacant and abandoned and had been for a long time. Um, if you look through the property records in Indiana, we have a sheriff sale and a tax sale. So those are properties that are behind on taxes that are reclaimed from residents. And the house next to me had had quite a history of going through these tax sales and being sold to an investor who would just sit on it and not improve the house, somebody who would buy it because they were cheap. So typically these houses sell for thousands of dollars rather than tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So these houses are somewhat appealing to people. Um, 
to have a fresh start. And I think I'd like to think that my neighbor, my last neighbor, that was her intent was to buy this house so she could have a place to live that she could afford. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And she ended up um, abandoning this house about a year into us living here. It very quickly became a challenge for us. Again, our, we're platted very close together, so I can barely lay down in between houses um, and I can see everything going on in my neighbor's house. So when that house is vacant, that directly impacts my well-being and my property. So when we moved in and started to notice that the grass was overgrown and her car wasn't there, um, her mail was piling up, it, it was concerning for us. And once she decided that she just was going to let it go, unfortunately, the city and the state didn't do much to back us up. Um, and I think for me, that was my big jumping point is that if I'm struggling with this as someone who has the access and ability to contact our state government and our city government and work with people and I'm still not getting answers, what happens to the people who have less capacity and ability to advocate for their neighborhood? And we have to have solutions for these abandoned homes because they're not they're not few and far between. They're everywhere in our city. And what are we going to do to fix this? And I think for me, going down that journey and just running into red tape and red tape and red tape, is we have to find a better solution for this. I'm happy to say the house now has somebody in it, but that was a four-year journey to get somebody in that house. And I just hope other people don't have to go through that same path. I don't think anybody would just jump in and say, right, I'm frustrated with this, so I'm going to be the agent of change here. So huge kudos to you for stepping up on that. That's That's amazing. Yeah, it was quite a journey, and uh, there's there's pictures. We had grown corn in their backyard to try and keep the mowing down. Um, we boarded the window. I mean, it was it was quite an adventure, and and I'm so happy that somebody's in it now. Our neighbors are fantastic, but to get from point A to point B was was a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, shifting a little bit from your background in Indianapolis, I want to go into some broader, more philosophical questions, and then. I think I'll, I'll bring it back around to more specifics on Indy and your experiences. So starting very broadly on this, uh, what do you think are characteristics when you think of what makes a city very livable? Like, what is a very livable city to you? Yeah, so I had a few thoughts I kind of jotted down as I was thinking about this. I think as someone who walks and bikes and sometimes uses a scooter in our city. I mean, I think walkability and pedestrian access is key to having a city that's livable. You know, you brought that up. We're very car centric here in Indianapolis and really in the state of Indiana, just because we are, there's so many parts of our city that are rural that drive policy across the state. So, I mean, for me, when we were looking at neighborhoods, we wanted to make sure that we had a place to live that I could walk, that we could walk to go eat, that we could walk to see our friends. Um, so that was a big deal for us. And I think that walkability is still a huge piece of having a livable city. I can drill into that a little bit. What is it about walkability for you that is very livable? You know, what, what's wrong with driving mm -hmm. everywhere? I mean, I think for me, we're guilty that we, we have cars and we use them again because our Indianapolis is not completely walkable and to be car free. I think it's not only that ability that there's things in close distance. So just because you can walk somewhere, technically everybody can walk anywhere, right? But if I'm going to walk three miles to get to my closest place to eat, it's not really walkable. Um, if I have to, yeah, if I have to walk through heavy traffic, if I have to walk through um, areas that don't have sidewalks or have sidewalks that are falling apart. I don't think even though those are technically places you can walk, I wouldn't consider that walkable. So you're saying there can be impediments to walkability 
But what what more about the characteristic of walkability makes it livable, right? So say say you're living in a city that's just a a walkable paradise. What what is so attractive about that? I think for me, it's that I really have that freedom. Um, I'm not tied to getting to places in certain ways. So, you know, there's definitely places that in my neighborhood that I would prefer to walk to. You get to see your city in such a different way when you're walking. Um, Kind of on that campaign side, I mean, I have been walking our district so much recently that I get to see things from such a different way that I don't get to see them when I'm in my car. You notice the small pieces of artwork that you wouldn't have noticed if you're driving 40 miles an hour down that street. You're not going to talk to people when you're in your car. But you definitely get to meet new people when you're out walking around that I don't think you get that opportunity if you're completely reliant on your car. Absolutely. That's that's really well said. So like when when we're driving in our car and I would say probably going, I'd say 25 miles an hour or above, you just don't notice things, right? You're, you're focusing on getting from point A to point B, hopefully safely, hopefully not texting right. while you drive. You just, you miss a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, I... I can't even think about how many times I've been walking and noticed small artwork that's been in some of our neighborhoods that residents have put in, um, you know, small murals that they've done on the side of their houses, or there's a few places in Fountain Square, which is the commercial district right next to me, that people have put in like small fairy doors, you know, they're three or four inches high on the side of buildings. Like Those aren't things that you would see in a car. Now that I have a dog that I've been walking, I mean, I've met so many other neighbors that I wouldn't have met had we just been driving that will stop and talk to me and recognize my dog. Mostly they don't recognize me, but they'll recognize my dog and want to talk to me about stuff that's going on in the community that that opportunity would have been lost if we passed each other just driving down our street. So what I hear you saying is um, walking and walking your dog, walking to places connects you to those around you and grounds you in, in where you live as opposed to, I'll call it a more disposable viewpoint of where you live. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we hear that a lot from residents over here that, you know, we really push and we'll talk, I'm sure this will come up again, the whole idea of a built environment and how that impacts your social interactions. But I think as a neighborhood here, we have really advocated for socially welcoming the way that we build our houses. So we want to make sure our houses have front porches and have a front yard and that we're not encouraging you to drive your car in your garage, go straight into your house and we never see you. Um, by having front porches, when I walk down your street, I hope you sit on your front porch and I have the opportunity to meet you and talk with you. And I think that does a, that goes a long way to build that sense of community that that I think a lot of our suburban neighborhoods are lacking because you don't have to walk, right? You drive, you drive up your driveway, you park your car, you go in your house. And I think that's the unique piece that we see in some of our historic urban neighborhoods is that we have to walk places. Because when my house was built, we didn't have cars. I had a horse and carriage in the back of my house. Um, so we have to we have to consider how we're building our houses and how we're building that environment to kind of force people to interact. Yeah, 100%. So it's interesting. You also talked a moment ago about uh, freedom and choice, um, which is a a frequent thing that I know a lot of people that really feel like they enjoy driving to places feels like, uh, you know, having to walk or bike or something like that removes choice. But isn't it kind of the opposite? We're talking about building cities that allow for all modes of transportation, but uh, a real livable one just flips the priorities on its head. And then I think it puts it in the order of walking first, then biking, then public transit, 
followed by cars and trucks. Um, what do you, how do you react to that? Yeah, I agree. I think that when we're considering person level size development, when we're considering that human element to that, it gives me a lot more freedom. So if I want to walk downtown, for example, I mean, for me, that's about a 20 minute walk. I can choose to go away where I can see more of our large development in the city. So I can walk right by where the Pacers play and I can walk by where the Colts play, or I can walk on another path where I'm going to see more people, or I can walk on a path where there's more green space and there's more tree canopy. But the great part is, is I get to pick that. If I'm in a hurry, I can pick the quickest path. But if I want to go on a little bit more of an adventure, I have that ability to choose a few different ways. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, I think you also increase the uh, the choice and the livability for other folks as well. So, say you're walking instead of being forced to drive, that's one less car getting in the way of somebody who really actually needs to drive their car. Yeah, and we're kind of in it. Like I said before, our, where our neighborhood is is placed is we're kind of in between two interstates. So we do see a lot of pass-through traffic. So we see people that cut through our neighborhood to be able to get on the interstates, which is great because those people don't live here. So they do have to come through our neighborhood. So I think every opportunity that I have to reduce that traffic on the street for those people that don't live here, love to do that. Um, I would love to be car-free. And I think Indianapolis is getting better to that point with our transit improvements that we've made recently with a little bit more focus on trails and bike infrastructure. I think we're moving in that direction where we can truly allow people to feel safe to make that choice. I know when I lived there, I lived downtown too, within the square mile. You know, I had the good fortune of working from home as well, which definitely helps. But I did have a car, but it sat six out of seven days a week and I barely ever used it. And I walked and biked to most places, which was really a high quality of living. And uh, here in Chicago now, I I've gotten rid of my car fully and I use so many different ways of getting around. I walk a ton. I bike a lot. Um, I use the bike share a lot. I use the L. I use the bus. I do use Uber and Lyft occasionally. Now, moving forward a little bit, uh, a little bit more specific, any places that you've visited, so maybe one or two examples um, that really shine as examples of livability, and what about them really embodies this concept to you? Yeah. So, I mean, not to sound like totally, totally stereotypical of like, a young millennial who's who enjoys living in an urban environment. Um, but I actually spent most of my summers growing up in Portland. For me, see, you know, the traditional like Portlandia view of how great Portland is. And I had the opportunity to go back last year, actually, um, with a totally different perspective. I mean, growing up there and being there most of the summers as a kid, you know, you don't really think anything about it. And but coming back as an adult, seeing other cities, I, there's one area in Portland, I believe it's kind of the Burnside area um, that I remember we went to go visit and I thought, man, this is awesome. It was one of the places I think that really stuck out to me because the housing stock was, was relatively dense for the area, but you also didn't feel like you were in this downtown core, but you were close enough. The streets, I would say, were really pleasant. So they were tree-lined. You were far enough from cars that you didn't feel like you were unsafe. Um, tons of kids out playing on the street, but it still had that really urban feel to it because the lot sizes were small and the houses were dense. But then you also had opportunities for transit nearby in Portland. I mean, I think that's a, always a great opportunity that they have offered residents over there. And then, but you could get to commercial and work opportunities very quickly. So 
you might have three streets of residential and then have a commercial nub where you could be there and you could see, you know, you would have an opportunity to eat, but then there was also something that had a storefront, but then there was also an office. So it wasn't just a bar district or, you know, a shopping district. It was really intermixed in there. I think it gave a lot of opportunity for the folks that lived there. Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually, believe it or not, haven't been to Portland before. I've been to a lot of cities, but Portland's not one of them. But what I hear you saying about it is um, it's very walkable, It's um, which makes things easy to get to. Um, doesn't take a lot of time to get to them because there's there's a lot of choice within a small area. And within that small area, there's there's a lot that you can do. So like you can get a bite to eat, you can go shopping, you can hang out, you can get your coffee, etc. Yeah. And I think looking, you know, going back to like, what is that that makes a place livable? I think some of our neighborhoods here in Indianapolis have kind of almost been typecast into what they are and what their identity is. So I'm thinking, so we have a neighborhood kind of flipped from where I am, but on the northeast side of downtown, it's called Broad Ripple. And I think that area, unfortunately, has kind of been typecast as a nightlife and bar area. So most of the businesses that are coming in there are to support that identity. I don't know that everybody that lives in Broad Ripple moves there because there's great bars and it's easy to walk to and from at night when you've had a little bit to drink. But I think that's, although it it's dense and you can get places and that walkability is there though. I don't know that there's many other opportunities if you're not eating or drinking to do there. I, I feel like that piece is missing. So if we're talking about, is that a livable city? Is that a livable neighborhood? I think we're still missing things in that area to really make it, to include everything that I would look for um, in a livable, in a livable neighborhood or city. Absolutely. Like, can you get your groceries? Are there places to be outside and enjoy it without feeling like, you know, you're being attacked by traffic or run over on skinny sidewalks by uh, people walking at a furious pace, stuff like that, right? Does it does it have a bunch of different things? And why does it have to be typecasted as one certain thing, right? Mm-hmm. That that part I, I never understood about some of the U.S. modern zoning. Yeah, I think another thing too, looking for, um, you know, places livable, I think there are some cities doing this really well, and then there's some that are not doing this very well, but looking at lifelong housing options. So can we age in place? And I think sometimes as we're building our cities, we forget that, that eventually we're all going to get old. And my preference is that just because I'm older, I don't have to move out of this neighborhood. I would love to age in place in my house, but is that something I can do? So, you know, can I, is my house accessible for me if I need a wheelchair? Are my, is my, are my sidewalks accessible if I need to use a walker? Can I get to healthcare easily? And I think sometimes we don't consider all of those pieces when we're looking at what to recruit and build business-wise. But I think that's important for us to look at too. Um, there's a big push in Indianapolis right now to continue to recruit um, nursing homes in some of our areas where you know I, I don't want to leave my actual community. I just can't live in my home anymore. And I don't want to have to leave my urban neighborhood when I need help taking care of myself. And I don't know that all of our neighborhoods are doing a good job of recruiting those options and healthcare providers close enough so we can all age here. Yes, totally agree. This is a fantastic uh, example uh, to think about when you're thinking about livability. So we've let our U.S. cities, most of them, I'd say, uh, except for maybe New York City um, in the U.S., just languish so much over the last few decades that we've lost that diversity of things in a compact place. 
that really benefits everybody. So, and now we've, we've kind of lost that ability to think about it. So when we say, you know, oh my gosh, somebody, somebody who um, is quite a bit older and, and not able to get around, not able to drive anymore safely, then we start to just think about it kind of in a narrow lens, right? Oh, we need to fix it for them only. But I think we need to think much broader. Yes, we need to solve it for them, but um, does solving it for them and thinking about them also, you know, take you, direct you a step back to solve accessibility for everybody? Yeah. I mean, I think if we designed our streets for a wheelchair user, our cities would look so different. Absolutely. Um, And I think, I think a street that's safe for somebody in a wheelchair is probably pretty safe for a five-year-old as well. Yeah, I, I, I believe one of the strong indie or groups posted this, but something I don't always think about is, you know, bike lanes serve a purpose for adults, right? Usually I use the bike lanes in my neighborhood to commute, but I don't know that we always think about, is that bike lane safe for the second grader that's going to school? And if not, it's probably not usable, right? We shouldn't be developing infrastructure for one subset of the population. So if I'm kind of iffy on riding my bike there, why would I trust that this would also be usable for a small family to get places? Um, And I, that was honestly, I mean, for how much I cycle and ride around, that was not even something I had thought about was, yeah, would I let my kid ride on this bike lane on this major street downtown Indianapolis? Probably not. But why wouldn't we develop it so a young family could ride their bikes to dinner or, you know, a kid could ride their bikes to school using these bike lanes? There's no way families would do that right now in our city. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And that's like built in exercise. It's it's a kid that's getting familiar with where they live, building trust. There are so many positives to that. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit again, um, you know, with all of your experience in getting involved here and running for city council on that, you know, around Indianapolis, generically, you know, more broadly for our cities and our towns, why do you think for all of our listeners, why do you think it's important to get involved and help make our cities more livable and not not let it be, you know, somebody else's responsibility? I think if we, as the people that live in these neighborhoods and cities, aren't the one driving this narrative and discussion, we really run the risk of somebody else deciding that for us. You know, going back to that, the broad ripple example the counselor that's working up there is working so hard to include a lot of these livability aspects because that's what the citizens over there want. You know, they're trying to steer it away from that nightlife only. You know, they're they're putting in different schools, they're increasing their parks, they're they're doing so much to try to attract everyone in this area and to make it where everybody can live here, not just college age kids or kids that get out of college and want to continue to have that very bar lifestyle. I think it's important that those of us who live here have to drive that narrative because we're going to be the ones that are here and want to stay here. And a lot of our neighborhoods that are changing and buying, there's a lot of investment coming in from outside our neighborhoods. And, and I can speak specifically for our Bates Hendricks area. A lot of the investment that's being made is not being made by me and my neighbors. These are people from outside our city, from sometimes outside of our state, that are coming in and dictating what my neighborhood should look like. And they don't live here. They're going to build and they're going to sell their house and then they're going to be gone. And those are not the people I want to drive the future of my neighborhood. I want the neighbor who's lived here 50 years to tell me what they liked about it 50 years ago and how we can get back to that. I don't want it to be the person who just heard about us or their investor told us that we were a beautiful neighborhood and that they want to come make some money and then leave. 
So I think it's important that we have to do that. But also the people that choose to live here, we have a really unique perspective because like I said, we're the boots on the ground. I'm the one walking down East Street, which is the main street in our neighborhood, and realizing I would not push a stroller down this street. No way. How can we make this better? And I feel like those of us who live here are going to be the best people to make those decisions. Yeah, because you're basically um, feet on the ground, right? With uh, you're, you're both the user and the leader in this case. Yeah, and I think we also have, like I said, that unique perspective, but also a lot of us who live here and who are active are seeing these different pieces, right? So, I mean, I'm relatively young, so I provide this perspective, but we have some people on our board who've lived here 10, 15 years. They provide a different perspective because their their concerns are different. They have kids. They're worried about the schools. They're worried about how does my kid get to school? You know, and then we have some older people on our board who are worrying about that age in place and the rise in income tax or property taxes and all of those perspectives. Again, we get that very parcel by parcel view of what's going on versus relying on the city government to do that. They're doing everything from very a large perspective and they might make decisions that don't make sense. And a lot of the times they honestly do because they're not here every single day. And that's, that's our responsibility as citizens and as neighbors to make those decisions that are going to be the best for us for the next 10 years or 15 years or 100 years. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So what I hear you saying is if you don't get involved, what you get is a pretty rough averaging effect or particularly in in the United States, you get a um, somebody comes in really strong, typically with a lot of money and just kind of bulldozes right on through what they want. Yeah, I think, um, you know, going in the weeds a little bit, something so our neighborhood has a land use committee, which would be something I would advocate for every neighborhood to have um, a committee that reviews the development that's happening in your area, the the use of certain areas. So looking at where are we looking for commercial development and are we ensuring that commercial development's preserved in some of these areas? I mean, the request that we get from people and I say, have you ever walked this street? No. Okay, well, then I don't think you understand why we can't have a driveway on a on a residential street where people walk. Your driveway is going to cut through all of this pedestrian access. Driveway is going to mess up the view of the street, the line of sight. And I think, again, if these decisions are only made at the city and we're not advocating on our end, yeah, we're getting somebody who says, well, the zoning looks right for a, a front facing garage or it looks right for a driveway without actually seeing that livability and that that ground level access of, of how that's actually going to impact what we're doing. Absolutely. So if I can summarize that a little bit, because um, it was great, uh, really great thoughts. So at the city level and at that that higher level, it's much more coarse grained, right? They, there's just not enough staff at that top leadership level to to get really nuanced in what's truly needed on a block by block or even like a property plot by property plot basis. And so you getting involved, all of us getting involved, bring our voice in there, brings in that more nuanced point of view, especially if you're willing to take ownership of it and, you know, and do more than just say, you know, to your alderman or your councilman, this is what we need, you know, and just yelling at them um, or like posting comments online, just yelling or, or even just voting. If you get involved and you lead, you get much more of a say. Yeah. And I, I honestly think the more that with the city, they really truly want our input. Um, I think that the city recognizes that they can't, they can't make all of these decisions on their own. 
And sometimes that narrative again gets pushed. City doesn't care. It's big interest. It's big money. Nobody cares about me, just the average neighbor. When I actually think they do. And it's a beautiful opportunity for a partnership where our city officials and our city staff can really say, hey, I know we have to put together the big picture, but you guys get to fill in the little pieces. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, all right. So I'm going to clump two of these things together here. So um, first part of the question is, what do you think are some of the livability strengths of Indianapolis specifically? And then what do you think are some of the real weaknesses, those top weaknesses that you'd, you'd like to point out? So I think our neighborhoods, our historic neighborhoods, um, I think one thing to point out about the city of Indianapolis is our city and our county are the same thing. Um, we have something here called Unigov, which in some ways is great from a cost savings perspective um, and a planning and, can, and kind of descriptive level of what Indianapolis is, is makes it tough. So we have our downtown and our urban neighborhoods, but we also, the city and the county include some, I would say not quite rural, but almost rural areas, some suburban areas where there's still farms in part of Marion County. And that's still the city of Indianapolis, right? So our descriptors of Indianapolis, this is such a wide spectrum of, of what that includes. And I empathize with the planning department because they have to pass zoning ordinances and everything that includes my urban neighborhood, as well as someone who has 25 acres, right? We have to have the same regulations and everything. And the same with the counselors, right? Our council is trying to make pass these ordinance for the city that include everybody. So I think it's really tough when you look at the city as a whole. My neighborhood is so different than other parts, even 30 minutes down the road from me. But I think in our urban neighborhoods, what I like about our, our strengths here is that we're starting to see those commercial nodes come back. So my urban neighborhood historically was very livable and walkable. So it was made so you didn't need a car, right? I mean, we, we built these streets. I have cobblestone streets still in, in our neighborhood. And it was meant where you rode the train downtown to work at your factory and you came back home, you walked to the grocery store, you walked to the pub, your doctor and your barber were here, you walked to school. And I think the bones of that are in our historic neighborhoods. And I'm happy to see that we're starting to build on what we've already had there. So where were there naturally commercial nodes? Where were there naturally residential nodes? Where did we have these areas that are already here? Because it worked at some time. My guess is it's going to work again. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's one piece that I see in Indianapolis is that we have historically had neighborhoods that were condensed and that you could be in what used to be Fountain Square, which is was part of my neighborhood. You could be here and everything you needed was right here. And if we look to historically where those were and we make sure we're helping that, using that information to inform our decisions moving forward, which I think we are, I believe that we're going to see that livability and walkability and accessibility all come back. Yes, agreed. Um, and I'll take off that a little bit. So, you know, again, you're running for city council in the 16th district in Indy. And if elected, you would have more of a direct say over some of the things that really impact the livability of that district, which is a really significant part of Indianapolis. What do you think would be your top two changes you'd prioritize and push for around that that livability topic? So if anyone outside of Indianapolis, I think we this winter we got tons of press coverage, unfortunately, for our crumbling infrastructure. So I've struggled 
as I've learned more about how the funding for the city works, I don't feel like we have a solid long-term funding plan for any of our infrastructure. So a lot of the concerns I hear are that neighborhoods are asking for new sidewalks, better sidewalks, their alleys aren't paved, their streets are falling apart, they want more roads and trails. But at the end of the day, we can't even maintain what we have right now. So although it would be great if everyone had sidewalks in front of their house, sidewalks that lead to nothing are not productive. We need to make sure that when we're building these new roads and these new sidewalks and these new streets, that then we're making sure we have the budget to maintain them long term and that these connect to the plans that we already have. We have some beautiful long term plans in the city of Indianapolis in terms of indie moves and, and how are we going to get people to the things they need and the amenities. But I don't know that that's always actually reflected in the decisions that we make day to day. So I'm a big advocate for making sure if we pass these plans and people way smarter than me have decided that this is the direction that we should go, that we're actually following those in our planning. Uh, you touched on a key subject there that I think might be a little esoteric for some people, um, how, how you connect maintenance, maintainability of infrastructure to livability. But you know, the way I like to think about it is if a city can't afford to maintain what it has, then everything's going to fall apart. And how livable is that, right? If you're tripping over broken sidewalks, if cars are swerving around deep potholes, right? If bikers like can barely hold on to their handlebars going over the road surfaces, like that, it, it sounds really basic and, and very unsexy, but I actually think it's quite the opposite. It's, it's one of the most important, if not the most important thing for uh, city leadership to get right. Well, and I think talking about the long-term health of a neighborhood. So my big push as a candidate is for strong, healthy neighborhoods. And I think that if that's what we're thinking in our decision-making process, it's going to lead us to making the best decision. So is this going to make my neighborhood stronger, more livable, and healthy? Um, if not, then we probably shouldn't consider that. And one thing that I worry about representing a large part of Indianapolis that's currently redeveloping is we're making a lot of investments right now but sidewalks and roads fall apart. What's going to happen to my neighborhoods when they're not the hot neighborhood and the hip neighborhood anymore? What sustains that growth over time? And one of those pieces is that we have to have that curb appeal. And if there literally are no curbs, people are not going to want to continue to make private investments in our neighborhood, which we already know we're not going to have enough money in the city of Indianapolis to pay for everything we need. So we are going to have to rely on private public partnerships for a lot of these things that the city can't maintain. But if, if our roads and streets are crumbling, people are not going to invest in these neighborhoods again. And I know that we're going to see another, as much as I hate this idea, right? The pendulum always swings. Urban neighborhoods are hot right now, but we know that there's probably going to be a swing back to suburban neighborhoods. And what are what happens then? What sustains those of us that choose to stay here? It's not fair that my streets are crumbling just because I'm not the hot neighborhood anymore. And I think if you keep maintaining your neighborhood really, really well and, and all aspects of the most you know productive, developed parts of your city, what you get is you know the opportunity to evolve it even further and make it even more valuable and more special, more lovable, more livable. That has staying power, I think, above uh, just a fad of a return to the city. So that when you said, you know, when people are like starstruck about suburbs again and, and moving out that way, at least it, I think it won't be exactly how it happened before in the United States. It might be a little bit more like um, maybe suburbs are, are looking like uh, inner cities are um, in the United States, right? And it's just people want the same thing just in a different place. 
Yeah, it could mm-hmm. be completely different, but all the principles. I think we're seeing some of that now too, with just how even suburban neighborhoods are changing their zoning and they're changing what they're prioritizing. I mean, I think this the suburb that I grew up in in Fishers, just north north of Indianapolis. I mean, they're investing in a massive trail system. I can tell you that never would have happened when I grew up there. Exactly. Um, because they're wanting to invest because people are saying, right, at the end of the day, this is the big conundrum that all of us are going to face is, you know, where's my quality of life the best? And and some people have to make that difficult choice to say my quality of life in my neighborhood right now, as much as I want to be in an urban neighborhood, doesn't meet my expectations. and I can't live here. But then when these people move to the suburbs, they want the things we had that were livable here, right? The trails, the sidewalks, the bike paths, the density, the act, the walkability to to restaurants and daycares. They want that. And I think we're starting to see some of our suburban neighborhoods change how maybe what we consider a suburb. Yes, exactly right. So what do you think uh, keeps Indy from implementing real meaningful livability changes? I mean, you, I think you alluded to it a little bit, but... Maybe you have some more thoughts on that. I think our our biggest challenge in in Indy, again, we have being Unigov, so being the city of Indianapolis is Marion County. Marion County is the city of Indianapolis. We're so diverse and we're so large. Really, a lot of our challenges tie back to financial, local governments and how we can bring in revenue to cover our costs is very is very difficult. So in Indianapolis, we have property tax caps, which make it difficult for local government to really take in income and take in revenue to do these new projects. The city is still recovering from the housing crisis and the recession to be able to recoup the costs that we didn't have and get our staff back hired. We're, you know, we're low on city planners. Well, that was because for a long time, we were just trying to keep the city open and running. Now we're little, you know, our revenue is increasing as a city where we can pay these other positions to bring in creativity and to bring in innovation, where before we just had to make sure that our cops were paid. We had to make sure that, you know, we had we had a council that could pay to keep the lights on. So I think for us, a lot of our challenges in the city are financial. So wrapping up now, um, so for our final question, for all of our listeners, do you have any practical advice on how you think they should begin, right? So if they really feel aligned with you, like, okay, Laura can get involved, right? She can do all this stuff, which is great for Indianapolis. I want to do something for my town or city. Where do you think they should start? I think there's small impacts are how we start to get people together. So you don't have to create this master plan for your neighborhood. There's small impacts make a big difference. So even just thinking, you know, is there, do we need to advocate for a stop sign on our street? Do we need to advocate to change the speed limit on our street? Do we need to change the parking patterns? What can we do that is going to make our city more livable? How can we advocate for that? And I think neighbors can do that with just a core group of people. I don't think it has to be this large master plan. Find out what those small things are that all of your neighbors are concerned about and then how many people can you get that also say, I would like it if my kids could ride their bike on the street, or I would like it if we had a coffee shop we could walk to, and then work together with the community partners. They're our biggest asset in our neighborhood, are, are the schools, the businesses that are here, the nonprofits. I mean, they can elevate our voice and know people and network for us and finding what are those natural assets that you already have in your community. 
That's excellent advice. So just to summarize that, so I hear you saying, go find some like-minded people um, who want similar things, maybe not exactly the same, but similar things to what you're looking for to add to livability where you live and start advocating for it. And would you would you say you that they should probably go talk with their council person or their alderman? Um, or would you just start holding up some signs on a corner? Where do you think uh, that energy and that fo- that advocacy should focus? Yeah, I mean, this is my shameless plug for neighborhood associations. I think that we do so much as a neighborhood association that that I don't know that you couldn't do with a loud voice of people. You know, when we go to things, we have access to, you know, our membership list of people to say, hey, we need people at this hearing because they're talking about the speed limit in our neighborhood. And I can easily get 15, 20 people to turn out to a city county hearing. Having, depending on what that is, I mean, if your counselor needs to be involved, absolutely loop them in on things. And that also gives you a pretty good indication of where their priorities lie. They're willing to meet with you and a group of neighbors to problem solve. I think you have a good partner in what you're doing. Um, If you don't have government side on that, it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. Um, But I think there's so many things as average citizens that we can do to change the composition, to change the attitudes in our neighborhoods. Um, that just takes a little bit of organizing and planning. So just just start somewhere and keep an open mind. You never know what will happen, right? Absolutely. I think there's so many things in our neighborhoods that have happened because one person said, I don't like this. And then they found other people that don't like that. And I don't know, like our neighborhood association, I don't think we started with this grand plan that we would be a nonprofit and that we would have a quality of life plan and strategic plans and raise this money. I think that it was just a group of neighbors who said, I don't like the houses that are falling apart on my street. What can we do? From there, it's grown to this wonderful community group that really supports each other and that is able to do amazing things. But I don't know that that was their goal on day one. Well, Laura, do you uh, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I just want to say thank you. I think you talked about what are some some barriers to making real change. I think part of this is really educated discussions on you know sharing what's worked well in one neighborhood and what hasn't worked well and and having that creativity to solve these problems. As we continue to have these discussions, I think our neighborhoods and our cities are going to continue to grow, but we have to have somebody that's willing to host these. And so I I just want to say thank you for having this podcast so we can have these great discussions and learn from other people who are probably way smarter than me, who've been doing this for a long time and have great ideas to share. No, thank you for being on the podcast. This has been fantastic. A real joy to have you. I'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah, thank you. 